Podcastle, number 14. For July 1st, 2008. The Grand Cheat by Hilary Moon Murphy. Hello, this is Rachel Swirsky, Podcastle's chief editor. Today's Podcastle is The Grand Cheat by Hilary Moon Murphy, author of our popular third episode, Run of the Fiery Horse. Hilary Moon Murphy is a librarian, storyteller, and parent. In her spare time, she runs the Twin Cities Speculative Fiction Writers Network, the best networking site for writers of SF and Minnesota. If you're in the neighborhood, she invites you to go on over to one of her events. The Grand Cheat first appeared in Tales of the Unanticipated number 23, which came out in April 2002, coincidentally on the same day as Run of the Fiery Horse. Hillary says, I've always been a sucker for tales that deals with the devil. There is something uplifting about finding the loophole that will save someone from an impossible situation. This story was partly inspired by Faust, partly inspired by Indian folklore, and partly inspired by the young Mohandas Gandhi, a fabulous example of a lawyer who became a hero. While I leave you with that teaser for a moment, one of the things we plan to do with these introductions from time to time is talk about events and trends in the science fiction and fantasy community. This week I want to let you know about the Clarion West Write-A-Thon for 2008. If you've been listening to the author bios for this podcast, you've probably heard of the Clarion West Writers Workshop. It's a training program for writers of science fiction, fantasy, and horror designed to help people who are just about ready for the publishing world take that final step to go out and become professional writers. Every year they train 18 writers for six weeks with six different instructors, asking them to write a new story each week. I and my associate editor, Anne Leckie, attended Clarion West in 2005. If you hadn't guessed, I'm a big fan of Clarion West, which is why I wanted to talk to you about the Clarion West Write-A-Thon. While this year's students are taking the workshop, many former Clarion West students, including myself, are writing at the same time as they are, as part of a fundraiser for the Clarion West Writers Workshop. The Write-A-Thon is sort of like a walk-a-thon. In a walk-a-thon, people pledge a certain amount of money per mile. In the Write-A-Thon, donors pledge an amount per week that the writer successfully meets his goals. People pledge as little as a dollar a week, sometimes a lot more. Some people prefer flat donations instead of per-week challenges, and that's welcome too. Donations are tax-deductible. If you're interested in sponsoring one of the 58 writers participating in this year's Write-A-Thon, you might like to know that a bunch of them have written or read for one of our podcasts, like Michael Swanwick, Ada Malinkovic-Brown, Kay Tempest-Bradford, Viler Kaftan, Kat Rambo, C.G. First, Aaron Cashier, Gord Seller, Christine Dykeman, Nisi Shaw, Tina Connolly, and Stephanie Burgess. You can even sponsor me if you want. I'm a good bet because this is my third try at the Write-A-Thon, and I've failed for the past two years. You can learn more about the Write-A-Thon at clarionwest.org slash events slash writeathon.com. Donation pages for individual authors are on our website at podcastle.org. Today's story was narrated for us by Rajan Khanna, coincidentally one of the members of this year's Clarion West class. He has his own website at rajankhanna.com. Enjoy the story! The Grand Cheat by Hilary Moon Murphy A contract is only two people, each doing his damnedest to cheat the other. 
Make no mistake, cheating is an art. The greatest cheats not only misdirect, but find hidden possibilities and make them real. Most people don't have the faintest idea how to do it. That's where we come in. Don't look so distressed, boy. In between petty squabbles, there will come the opportunity to make a difference in someone's life. But you won't be able to do that until you learn to cheat properly. My finest cheat started long ago, before India was even a country. Most of us were still under British rule one way or another. I was apprenticed to Sri Gare, one of the greatest negotiators in the princely states. I lived with him and his wife in a fine manner. Though I was from a poor family, he always treated me like I was his own son. When Srigare's wife was great with child, he was called to negotiate for the local Raja. Srigare made me promise to take care of her while he was gone. When my master's wife went into labor, the female servant shooed me out of the house, knowing that I would only be in the way. But I had promised my master, and I was very worried. What if something should go wrong with the birth? So I cheated. I sneaked back into the house when the servants were too busy to check for me. At first I only listened through the sheer blue draperies that curtained off the women's quarters, but all I could hear were screams, sobs, and muffled assurances. I crawled under the draperies, coming as close as I dared. The sounds were so awful I was certain that she must be dying. I meditated in the doorway to her rooms and prayed deeply for safety of mother and child. I prayed harder than I ever had before. I prayed so hard that I became aware of the God who was trying to slip past me into the rooms. Don't ask me how I knew it was a God, I just knew. And I cried, Hold! No one says hold to me, mortal, the God rumbled. He had four arms and four heads, but it was his voice that shook me. It was low and booming, and sounded through the marrow of my bones. In one of his hands he held a stylus which he pointed directly at my nose. Leaning over me, he shouted, Move aside! I was terrified, but I remembered my promise to my master. My mistress is giving birth, I said trembling. I will let no one pass who might disturb her. Fool, the god said. I am Brahma, creator of all things. Each head spoke now, the voices melding eerily as they echoed throughout the hall. His heads faced the four directions. Luxuriantly quaffed black curls fell across his chest and shoulders. He raised his arms so that his robes billowed around him, their folds shimmering in the dim light. With this stylus, I write the fate of all children as soon as they are born. You must let me pass. And what fate will you give this child? I asked. That is not given for even gods to know, Brahma admitted. I myself do not know until my stylus has touched the forehead of the babe. Very well, I said. I will let you pass on one condition. You must tell me the fate you have written when you are finished. At least three of Brahma's foreheads scowled, but he grudgingly agreed. When he returned, he said, This babe will grow up to be a poor man. He will toil on land owned by others to feed and shelter his large family. No matter how hard he works, he will never get ahead. His sole wealth will always be a bullock and a single bag of rice. The terms are rather grim, but most contracts with the gods are. I grabbed hold of the hem of Brahma's robes and pleaded with him to change the baby's fate, but the god was unmoved. Later, I was too ashamed to say anything to anyone of my encounter, not even my master. A year passed. Once more, Shrigare was called to counsel with the Raja when his wife was great with child. Again, I posted myself in the doorway in deep prayer. Again, Brahma tried to slip past, but I refused to let him by unless he promised to tell me the newborn's fate before he left. When he came out, Brahma shook his head and said, When this babe grows up, her fate will be to sell her body every night for food and shelter. She will never have any savings that are not taken from her. 
I knelt on the ground before Brahma and pressed my forehead to his jeweled feet. She is just the tiny babe, I pleaded. Please, great lord, creator of the universe, spare the child this terrible fate. The god remained unmoved. I told no one of my encounter. What good would it do? The years passed. As I watched the babies grow, I would find myself becoming more and more troubled. Surely, I thought to myself, something could be done to save these two children. I left my master and became a great negotiator in my own right. When negotiating with the British, I would hang them on the loopholes in their own laws. Soon I was chief negotiator for several of the princely states, but it was not enough. Even at the top of my profession, I would think of those two children and be troubled. Finally, I could stand it no more. I took my manservant and my fancy British car, left my practice, and resolved to seek them out and help them. I found the son still living in the same village, but in a hovel that was rented from another. Anand had been unable to find work, and at last had become a farmer, though a struggling one. He and his large family ate poorly and wore nothing but the cast-offs of others. As fate demanded, his sole possessions were a bullock and a single bag of rice. I told him that I had been a student of his father, and Anand welcomed me to his home, poor though it was. His whole family stared wide-eyed at my 1929 Bentley, my Seville suit, and my stiffly disproving Sikh manservant, Omar. With his orange turban, curved sword, and neatly trimmed beard, Omar made for an exotic sight in this remote Bengali village. Anand's family lived in terrible squalor. There was no furniture in the house, but a stained and worn cot. Lice crawled through the children's hair, and their gums bled slightly from malnutrition. Even the rats that scurried away from our feet looked poorly fed. Anand's wife conferred a moment with her husband, then left. She returned with two cups of sugar tea borrowed from a richer neighbor. Omar's nostrils flared as I accepted one of the cups. Calm yourself, I muttered to him before he had a chance to protest the polluting circumstances in which I had put myself. These people are Brahmins like myself. Omar pursed his lips and nodded, radiating only slightly less disapproval than before. I drank from one cup, and the family passed the other among themselves, everyone holding the cup an inch above their lips so that they would not touch it. Instead, they each poured one tiny sip of the precious liquid into their mouths. The eldest, a girl of about eight, rolled the tea along her tongue for a long time before swallowing to savor the rare treat. Later, when I saw that half their sack of rice was gone, I realized how much they had paid to offer me hospitality. How, I wondered helplessly, does one overturn a fate decreed by the gods? I knew I would not solve the problem in a single day, so I did small tests and watched the results. I concocted a tale of borrowing a thousand rupees from my master and offered them the sum in repayment. They were overjoyed, but the next morning they told me, bewildered, how the Zamindar's tax collector had come in the middle of the night, demanding exactly that sum. Similarly, any gift I gave broke, was stolen, or was sold as other debts mysteriously came due. Eventually, poor Omar had to sell the Bentley to help defray our expenses. I had to keep trying. When I hired a snake handler to rid the house of rats and a traveling nurse to delouse the children, the vermin did not return. That was when I learned that small changes were possible if they lay within the rules. This was helpful, but still not good enough. I could not stay there forever offering help good for only a day. It was only later, when Omar brought me a newspaper, that I began reading about the exploits of another former lawyer who was trekking his followers halfway across the Indian subcontinent to make salt. On the surface it seemed an absolutely demented quest, but there was genius buried in that madness. That was when the idea for my own glorious cheat finally came. 
I figured that if that Gandhi fellow could blatantly twist English law to promote freedom, why could I not do the same with a God's decree? I returned back to the hovel and found Anand. I have returned to help you, I said, but you must promise to do whatever I say without question. Anything is better than what I have now, Anand agreed. I give you my word. Good, I said. The first thing you must do is sell your rice and your bullock. Use the money to buy a good meal for your family, but purchase no more than what you can use today. All the rest give away. What? Anand cried. Are you trying to kill us? I raised an eyebrow and stared him down. Was that a question? I asked. Omar did his part by standing beside me and staring down his nose at Anand until the poor man folded. No, Sahib Jai, Anand said, shamefaced. Good. Feed the poor. Host a festival in the temple. Give a worthy village girl a dowry, but keep not one paisa for yourselves. Anon thought I was a madman, but he had promised. He sold the rice and the bullock, gave his family the best meal they ever had, and gave money away left and right. He kept not one paisa to himself. The next morning he woke to discover another full bag of rice in his pantry and another bullock grazing outside his home. Humph. Of course I'm a genius. You're only now just realizing this? Anand was also amazed. He asked me, What do I do now? Seldom again, I said with a grin, but keep not one paisa. And they did. Every morning they would find get another bag of rice and a bullock that they would sell. Soon Anand and his family grew sleek and well-fed. If they needed new clothes, they bought them for that day only and then gave them away. They still worked, but their toil was no longer desperate. At the end of every day, they owned nothing, but they were the most prosperous people I knew. Once Anand's family was well taken care of, Omar and I inquired after his sister. That was more difficult. No, I found her easily enough. She had indeed become a prostitute in a nearby village. I must admit, I was put off by what I first saw. The girl was a skinny little thing, and her eyes had that hollow look that only comes from years of despair. Her hair was dirty and tangled, and about her was the sour smell of sex. How old are you again? Well, perhaps that's old enough. Besides, if your grandfather didn't corrupt you, who would? She sold herself every night, but only earned enough to pay for rent and food the next day. When Omar brought her over to me, she frowned and said, Saib, you must be desperate to come to me now. Most of my men prefer to approach under the cover of darkness. Then she told me that her rate was fifty paisa, but that she would charge extra if I wanted something, well, unusual. What, you want all the unsavory details? You're not that old yet. Besides, I declined her offer. I said it as gently as I could. Lady, I have not come to partake of your feminine charms. Her eyes narrowed with suspicion. Then why have you come? My name is Jai, I said. I was a student of your esteemed father, Shrigare. Can we talk? She flushed and veiled her head with the crimson scarf. No, she cried and started to run. Omar's loud, resigned sigh echoed in my ears as I ran after her. I chased the girl through the muddy streets, Omar following swiftly on my heels. The old villagers poked their heads out their doorways to watch the spectacle. You should be ashamed, one hag screeched, wagging a finger at us. Meanwhile, several of the men merrily cheered me on and laid bets on what would happen when I caught her. I had never been so humiliated. With an extra burst of speed, I finally scooped her into my arms. I immediately regretted it. She was a wild mass of flailing limbs, sharp nails, and biting teeth. In the time it had taken to pin down her arms, she had kicked me several times and cried, Let me go! No, I said, gritting my teeth, not until we talk. 
She continued to struggle, and I waited her out. The entire village is watching, I whispered to her, poignantly aware of the crowd gathering to watch the show. Don't you care? One of the men grinned and shouted, Save some for us, Saib. She glared at me. They will talk anyway. Here I am just a whore. Do not shame my father's memory by speaking his name before these people. Leave now and never return. No, you don't understand, I stammered. No, you don't understand, she shouted. No one can help me. I've tried and tried to escape this life. Nothing works. I must have been cursed by the gods. You were. She stilled my arms and looked up at me with the largest and most startled eyes I had ever seen. At this point, Omar caught up with us. Clearing his throat, he said in a frosty tone, Surely the rest of you have something else you should be doing? He stood erect and proper, curling his lip with disdain as he stared at the gawking villagers. In the face of Omar's overwhelming propriety, the villagers had no choice but to disperse. Though, come to think of it, their rapid exodus might also have had something to do with the curving sword he had raised above his head. In any case, I whispered to her of Brahma's visit at her birth, and she wept like a child. Her tiny body felt so fragile I feared she might break, but still I did not want to let her go. I stroked her hair and held her until she calmed. So I'm doomed, she said resigned. She gently disengaged from my arms. My civil jacket was damp from her tears. No one has held me like that before, she said wistfully. I liked it very much. Then she walked away. My arms had never felt so empty. I called out, Wait! Why, you know that there can be no future for us. I have a plan that may free you, I said, but you must do whatever I say without question. She hesitated only for the barest moment. Then she took a deep breath and nodded. I will do as you say. Raise your price. Let no man into your rooms unless he can give you a sheaf of pearls and rubies. You're insane, she cried. There is no man in the world who could pay that. Exactly, I said. Her eyes lit up, and she laughed. With that laughter, her whole face softened, and I realized that she was achingly beautiful. How could I have missed it? You are brilliant, she whispered. I'll do it. She told all her customers her new price, and let none of them pass her doors. Omar found us some rooms that overlooked hers, and we kept watch, waiting. As the sun set, you could hear the low, haunting sound of village women everywhere blowing into conch shells to greet the darkness. Gradually, the night grew quieter, until all you could hear were the whirring sounds of insect wings. As the night grew dark, I became worried. What if no customer came? Then, in the dark before dawn, a wondrous stranger appeared, riding in a chariot pulled by seven glowing swans. In one of his forearms he bore a sheaf of pearls and rubies. As he approached a door, I sighed with a mixture of both relief and regret. I closed my curtains and tried to get some sleep, but I could not stop thinking about her. The next morning she ran to meet me, and my heart leaped. She had bathed, and her soft black hair flowed down below her hips. And her face, it had the most radiant smile I had ever seen. Even Omar nodded approvingly at the change. Jai, she said dreamily, how did you know what would come? His breath was as sweet as a lotus, and he had the gentlest, most skilled touch. I looked away, because I knew I had lost her. How could I ever compete with a god? Then she showed me the jewels. We admired them for a few minutes, and then she said, I must get rid of these, mustn't I? I nodded, and something in my chest constricted. As Omar led me away, I wailed, Why did she have to be intelligent as well as beautiful? He paused a moment before answering, The best ones always are, sir. I bowed my head and buried my feelings.
What else could I do? She sold the jewels and used the money to pay only for what she could use that day. The rest she gave away for the good of her village. She kept not one paisa. When night fell, she held to her new price, and the wondrous stranger came again. Under the regular caress of her lover, she blossomed into a beauty that warmed all around her. The village began to talk of how the prostitute was visited by a god every night, and they treated her with respect and awe. For who but the holiest of mortals could attract the divine? The fact that she gave away all her riches only added to her mystique. A year and a day passed. I knew that I had one more task ahead of me. Omar and I traveled to the main road that joined both villages, and I went once more into deep prayer. Omar sat patiently beside me, and I thought that perhaps he was praying too. We stayed there for all of a day and most of a night until, at last, I saw Brahma. He was leading a bullock with his first hand, carrying a full sack of rice in his second, and a sheaf of pearls and rubies with his third. When he saw us, he pointed the lead finger of his fourth hand at me. You! I should have known you were behind this! Do you realize how you've trapped me? Every day is the same schedule. Rice, bullock, rubies, pearls. And sex, I added bitterly. I did not pity him at all, you understand. He had her. Well, that last part is not so bad, Brahma admitted. But I get no rest. I leaned forward and said softly, Give my master's children their freedom, and you will have your own. It would be the proper thing to do, Omar added stiffly. Brahma paused. I had not thought of that, he finally said, but you are right. What more can I say? Brahma met with Anand and his sister, and he wiped their foreheads clean. As he did it, the young people felt a burden fall that they had not known was there. For the first time, the fate they faced was of their own choosing. As to what they did with their freedom, well, that is another story. Stop badgering me, boy, I told you that was the end. You won't leave me alone, will you? Very well. Anand left farming to learn law from me. He became my first partner. As for Kamala, she was the most renowned beauty of her time, as well as being beloved of a god. Princes and poets sought her hand. She could have had anything she wanted. When your grandmother came back to me, it was the biggest miracle of my life. Sit down, boy. I'm not accusing your grandmother of being a prostitute. She was one. We all have sordid pasts. Look instead at the life she carved out for himself. You still don't believe me? Remember the drawer in my desk that I told you was jammed shut? Omar, please hand him the key. Well, boy, are you going to open the drawer or not? Close your jaw. It's unbecoming hanging open like that. Where else would I get a glowing swan feather? And before you ask, the pearls and rubies are real. Of course I made Brahma give her the last sheaf. What kind of lawyer would I be if I hadn't negotiated de a decent settlement? What do you mean, what did I get out of it? Perhaps I worked pro bono. Stop smirking, Omar. It's very unbecoming. Very well. I did negotiate something for myself. I received the ability to read the fates on people's foreheads. It has proved quite useful over the years. So long as you know the terms of the contract that you are working with, the rest is easy. The fate on your forehead? Hmm. It says that you will be obedient, listen to your grandfather, and... Oh, you want to know what it really says. Some things are better not to know in advance. Don't worry, boy. When the time comes, Omar and I will help you find a way to cheat. After the story, the feedback. Lots of compliments for episode number 12, Baron's Dance, by Peter S. Beagle. On the blog, Little Lotus said, 
Although it took me a while to get into the story, the ending made me cry for more. The little tidbits of facts of the many characters that we received throughout the story made this as much of a mystery as a fantasy, which is fine by me. As always, great reading and wonderful writing. This is fantasy at its best. Chaz added, Although I liked the story, I was disturbed by the idea of the wizard having so much power without consequences. I don't like the idea of wizards being above the law and being able to simply take what they want without anyone being able to do anything about it. Guess that's probably the point, isn't it? On the board, Camo Blamo said, I loved the thought of the dancing wizard and the funny little creatures. The narration was a great touch. I spent a lot of time wondering how on earth the narrator knew everything he did, and the answer was both unexpected and satisfying. DKT was a dissenting voice, saying, I don't know, this one just didn't do it for me. Not because it was poorly written or narrated, mind you. The writing was nice enough, and it had magic and wizards, but I just had a hard time latching onto it. It just wasn't my cup of coffee, I guess. Deflective raised an interesting point. I've always wondered, he said, about uber-powerful magic with specific requirements. In this case, open space and free movement. What's protecting him from a sucker punch or a well-placed net? That's a good question. If you've got an answer, or even just another question, come on over to forum.escapeartist.info and share it with us. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial License. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. You can discuss this episode of PodCastle or nearly anything else in our forums. Just visit forum.escapeartists.info. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend or post to your blog about it or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. Samuel Goldwyn supposedly said, A verbal contract isn't worth the paper it's written on.